This is Bassam Tarazi. Welcome to Headspring, a podcast that celebrates modern business leaders who overcome uncertainty and setbacks to embark on a journey of digital innovation. Today, we are speaking with Ken Lottie, who is the Chief Science and Innovation Officer at SHL, where they help other companies select and develop the right people for the right roles through data-driven insights. As an industrial organizational psychologist and with 20 years experience in assessment technology, Ken has firsthand experience helping hundreds of organizations design scientific recruiting and hiring systems. In this conversation, we look at what software can and can't do when it comes to finding the right people for a job, what everyone gets wrong about AI, and what we can all do better in our next interview. Enjoy. Ken Lottie, you have a an unbelievable story. And in a previous conversation that you and I had, I asked you to dumb down what it is that you do or are trying to do better. And you gave me a great forward combo. You said, I'm trying to assess talent and scale science. Can you maybe expand on that in uh, in a simple way? Yeah, absolutely. So the the scale science bit is is something I've been working on for most of my professional career. And that's really just uh, the idea of using technology as a way to deliver science. And I'll say more about that as we talk what the specific thing is. But most of it has been around this concept of talent assessment. Um, talent as, a, as an idea is really a prediction. So you can talk about something that has happened and results, and it's easy to tell who won a race, for example, or who won a chess match. Um, but when you're saying someone has skills or talent for chess or soccer or whatever, uh, you're making a prediction about what will happen next time, what's going to happen in the future. So talent is essentially probabilistic, and that means it's uh, a great area for predictions. Um, and so in the world of employment, what we have is a, a, the ability to measure people and measure jobs and look at the probabilities and the match between people and jobs and really you know, fit people to jobs and help in the hiring process, help in the talent management process, and do all of that at scale globally uh, through the use of technology. This interest, was it something that happened at a young age? Was it something you were kind of always interested in seeing your field of study or had you kind of grown into it in your career? Yeah, I found it along the way. Um, I, you know, I started off actually in technology. So as a, as a kid, I was really interested in video games and the later part of my childhood started doing some coding and basic language on my Commodore 64 and started getting interested in kind of building technology and actually went to college for uh, computer science and was studying software engineering. But along the way, really kind of fell in love with the study of people and, and especially the idea that people could be predictable and quantifiable. And the, there was a way to, to integrate my interests in math and computers with the study of people. So I learned that there was this field called psychometrics, that was all about the measurement of these invisible constructs that we call skills or personality or cognitive ability or motivation or values or vocational interests. 
Um, and psychometrics is used in education uh, to help develop educational tests. It's used in the military extensively, and it's also used in corporations and uh, large organizations. So I became interested in the study of psychology, people at work, and the use of these tools to measure talent and to help organizations and people make better decisions about careers and job placements and promotions, um, hiring decisions uh, through the use of this science. And then uh, right around when I got out of graduate school, the internet was really taking off and there was some very cool innovation looking at how do you take this 100-year-old science of talent assessment that kind of started in the military and was always exclusively for large businesses uh, like Big Oil and the big telecoms, AT&T. Um, and now with the internet, you can spread this out quite a bit more and people can maybe even take tests from the comfort of their home. That was a radical idea at one point. So mm-hmm. that's right around when I when I entered the the kind of technology industry professionally and started working on these issues. You know, as I hear you describe that, there's there's something that goes off in my head as someone who has succeeded and gotten work uh, previously in life, I don't want to say solely based on charisma, but it sounds like psychometrics might be the enemy of of charisma. So should we be afraid of psychometrics in the sense of like, wait, if I have a good relationship with my boss and I want to raise, is that not going to happen anymore? Yeah, I think that's a very natural reaction, especially when you're first kind of thinking about it. Um, it's interesting though, you can actually, you know, psychometrically measure things like charisma. Um, so where, where there's careers, uh, and jobs and roles like, uh, podcast hosts, et cetera, that require charisma, um, that makes total sense that, you, that that would be a characteristic that somebody would prioritize and try to, you know, find people who had that. Um, it's also not just what you might think of in terms of kind of, academic type tests um the the job the classic job interview is a test uh it, it kind of meets our scientific definition of a test at least when there's scoring sometimes interviews are are just kind of gut instinct things that you know someone's just going to make a go no go decision but um you can actually you know a, a, an interview is a is a version of a test and it's something that we're all pretty comfortable with and even in the interview that's getting a major uh, upgrade with technology these days as there's an increasing move to virtual interviews. And then if you're doing it virtually, like we're doing today, um, there's a lot of other things that potentially you could do. Um, So you could, for example, um, share screens uh, and talk about something. So if you were, for example, hiring a programmer, you might want to see them write some code. Um, you couldn't really do that in a face-to-face interview, at least not comfortably uh, before. Um, and then there's other, uh, there's, there's other. We're just really kind of getting started on the journey of how much you could extend this idea of having people interact with more flexible digital stimuli uh, virtually. Um, my vision has been that we'll move more and more towards something like an interactive movie for psychometrics. So quite, quite a long distance away from a multiple choice, you know, <laughs> academic test, um, and much more like just a day in the life, like a natural experience where you can 
represent yourself the way that you want to be, uh, you know, seen and, and represented. Eventually, the technology will be sophisticated enough to actually score you on something like charisma without even a person needing to listen to it. So that's the that's the fascinating bit there, and that's the kind of next horizon that we're all working towards right now. Thinking about that. What keeps you up at night right now? I know you just mentioned you kind of leaned on the last thing you said, this this idea of of machine learning. But is that kind of the next thing? Is that the problem you're trying to solve for? Yeah, the the, the I, I think it's a it's the perpetual problem. Um, you've probably heard of like the project triangle, where you can you can have something fast uh, or cheap or uh, of high quality, but you you can't really have all three. So you, something has to give. And I think that's just the fundamental, um, that's what keeps this interesting from a product design perspective and talent assessment. It's about optimizing the trade-offs in order to create a better product. The move and the challenge that we've been you know, solving for and, and keeping us up at night over the past five years has been thinking through what does it mean to fundamentally rethink this interaction with people and how you can present information and receive responses when you have the phone as the main computing device versus previous generations. Um, And even the previous generations were really just facsimiles of paper-based processes. So the whole concept of a multiple choice test was designed in for world war one. It was designed for batch paper-based testing. So there's been a lot of innovation just to adapt to the new capabilities of mobile devices. Um, But along with that has also been this shift in the mindset towards um, improving the experience for participants. So as we all know now, there's the great resignation happening. But even before that, for the past 20 years, especially in tech workers and knowledge workers, it's been called the war for talent. And so there's this been increasing trend of caring what you put your job applicants through. It sounds surprising that people didn't do that before, but, you know, really before the mindset was we've got the jobs and the money. If you want them, you're going to go through these hoops. Um, Increasingly, that's not a very winning approach to talent acquisition. So increasingly, more and more employers are starting to care uh, what it feels like to apply for a job including the assessment process. So we've been spending a lot of time, you know, making assessments friendlier, um, making them more meaningful, giving people uh, direct, immediate feedback during the process and after the process on the results. Um, And a lot of these are, they sound kind of like common sense, but they're actually new practices, um, which is pretty fun. So there's, I think it's that it's, it's all around the experience. And then how do you marry that with these new capabilities like AI, machine learning, right. natural language processing and, and not ruin it because the, 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 I guess the nightmare scenario is a lot of these ethical and trust issues that, uh, that you're seeing in, in the, uh, artificial intelligence as, as a field and the various applications, things for, like facial recognition, et cetera, that, have bias embedded in them. And, um, you know, these things can be used, but should they be used? And how does that um, affect people's experience when they're trying to get jobs? And ultimately, how, how does it affect their likelihood of a taking a job at, at a company who's 
putting them through these kinds of hoops. Right. So that's the delicate balance and the kind of design optimization uh, trade-offs that we have to make because if you just left it to psychologists, they would say, well, we need about five days with people. We're going <laughs> to give them batteries upon batteries of tests and interviews and biographical information, et cetera. And you would get as much data as you possibly could. Right. Obviously, that's ridiculous. Um, so you have to figure out from all of the five days of things you wish you could do, what's the best 30 minutes uh, that's going to give you the most prediction in the most efficient way and deliver the best participant experience so that the right people who you make offers to will actually accept those job offers at the end of the process. So that's that's ultimately what we're trying to solve for. It, it almost it almost sounds, I mean, I'm sure every company could say this, but very unique for SHL is that your the technological problems you're trying to solve for really aren't just ones and zeros. They are heavily human problems, right? I mean, I think is is kind of what you're getting at is that it's it is not just a hey, we need better AI and we need to process this faster. And we no, because I think right on the other end of your technology is a very real human uh, whose whose job experience is really what you are kind of aiming to improve. Um, so, yes. yeah, yeah, we're not air traffic controllers, so we're not I, I wouldn't say we're saving lives or, or anything like that. But, yeah, it's considered pretty high stakes because people's jobs and their opportunity to earn income and support their families and have exciting careers. I mean, that's that's high stakes stuff. So we take it seriously. And, and yeah, there's there's really kind of two ways to view the technology. There's the is the platform up and running and available and secure and you know, kind of all of all of that stuff. That's the traditional view of technology. We've got, uh, at least I have much more of kind of a product view of the technology, which is, yeah, what is people's experience participating with your technology? And uh, how is that serving the ultimate um, point of, of the product that you built? How important is it for you and your development team to have the people leaning in, into the technology to truly understand the human experience, right? That change management side of things. Do you feel like what you look for on the development side are people who can also, you know, who at least understand or, or can lean into that human experience side because it is so imperative in what you're trying to do? It's really hard to get tech talent these days. So I definitely wouldn't say we're looking for purple unicorns right, of developers right. who simultaneously, uh, think like psychologists and, and marketers too. What we do though, is put all these people in the same room together. Mm -hmm. So what we, we do is we have a collection of experts, cross-functional experts. We run those as pods or squads, um, but it includes our engineers, our software designers who are working directly with the, the kind of the, the product with a capital P, the platform that supports all of the products. And translating, you know, requirements from uh, product business, product manager, product owner, business analyst types who are, you know, creating stories from the science team setting requirements for the thing to actually, you know, predict at the end of the day to successfully measure and predict, um, but also matching that with uh, market inputs on, you know, not just UX layout, but how does this thing need to integrate with other technical systems. So a big thing that we do and some of the technology challenges we have is the fact that we only control a really thin slice of an end-to-end -end workflow. So we're kind of patched in because we're this uh, expert software that has science embedded in it. 
but we don't do everything. We don't do people's background checks and do people's application forms. And we're, we're there to evaluate talent and match it to jobs um, for the most part, especially in the hiring process. So we have to plug in, our platform has to plug in through APIs and technical integration with applicant tracking systems and HRIS uh, platforms and, you know, general kind of em- employee systems and, uh, <laughs> and right, right. you know, uh, recruiting, other kinds of recruiting and uh, passive candidate engagement platforms and then corporate websites and career pages. So a lot of that stuff actually is... Um, is tricky and complicated and yeah. things can break for reasons that are not our fault. And so that, that's a really interesting dynamic when you have uh, the customer, the employer in this case is really stitching together a process across multiple technologies and platforms and providers. Um, and I don't know a lot of, uh, you know, a huge amount of things in our life where that happens outside of like the hiring process. It's right. a pretty weird thing. You know, in thinking of the general listener here who may be a small business owner who might not have a team, and I think, Ken, it's probably safe to say that you are not the one that's doing the ones and zeros. You're not doing that development work. You have a team there uh, under you. However, however, Ken is not um, a rookie or an amateur in the world of, hey, of, of needing to either build his own product or figure out who can do it because you had your own startup. Back yep. in the day, that was called that was called Psychobabble. Uh, can you just tell us a little bit about what it was and when was that? Yeah, so Psychobabble was about 2015 to 2018. I worked on it for about two and a half years, and the idea was to build an enterprise uh, enterprise HR technology software that leveraged AI and was used in uh, in hiring. So it's pretty high bar of of a piece of tech product to go try to build. Um, and I learned a lot doing it. Uh, I got, I had a lot of fun doing a lot of it and just uh, some nightmares <laughs> for some of the rest of it. And, um, and I'm I happy just, to talk about both. Well, I just want to lean in there for that, for that leader right now, who's thinking, well, did Ken know how to code or did he, I, I throw the word code. I'm literally putting air quotes here. Uh, because I don't do it. But was it something that you thought, I, I want to start this organization because I have the tools and the technical know-how to kind of maybe get it started? Or were you comfortable knowing, hey, here's what I'm looking for in a software developer, you know, or, or in a partner, because I know so many people have ideas and business ideas, and they get terrified at that tech crossroad, like, how do I do this? Who do I reach out to? So just curious on the lessons just on that front of how did you even think think or search or find a partner uh, to help build this? Yeah. So it definitely was not, not never going to be me. That was not my intent. <laughs> uh, my coding days are long past. I, I stopped back when we still used Pascal. Uh, so my coding days have long since ended, but um, so I knew I was going to have to use a partner and I, I, I guess I had somewhat, well, definitely had been lulled into a sense of complacency because I worked at an organization with a, with a relatively established team. And so I, I, you know, I underestimated, uh, to put it frankly, the challenges involved with trying to assemble a team, because here's the interesting thing, especially with something like enterprise software with AI, right? Just even those three, you know, those (laughs) three words, uh, combined in the same sentence means this is not 
a person building this. This is not, even if you find a genius full stack developer, it's extremely unlikely they could pull off mm. even an MVP of a piece of enterprise software. And I guess that was the last, that's the conclusion of my uh, startup journey was what I learned is you, you're not going to be able to find a couple of people, a couple of code jockeys, a couple of contractors, or for something that complicated, you, you can't do it that way. Um, there might be simple, if you just need a website built, you know, probably you can probably do that yourself without any coding these days. There's plenty of services that have the shells and the frameworks, but the whole infrastructure and supporting a website, all of it gets pretty complicated pretty quickly. So unless you're doing something simple, uh, it's on, well, unless you're going to do it yourself, then you probably know the limits of your own capabilities and what you're willing to do. Um, but I, I just thought I'd be able to find a couple of people or, or a great full stack developer who could really kind of pull it all together. And that was not my experience. Um, so in retrospect, I, I would have, would have, should have, could have looked harder for an existing team, um, like an agency that already had a batch of talent from different kind of specializations put together that could deploy them according to, you know, according to what was needed for the thing that was getting built, um, as opposed to trying to build my own team from scratch to just get the initial product built. The word AI has has come up a lot, so I, I want to just give it its quick due. Obviously, we're not going to dive fully into that right now, but I thought a, a, an interesting question might be, what's one big misconception about AI that people always get wrong? I think in our in 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 my world with AI and HR and employment, uh, what people get wrong is that they think that there's any intelligence inside of the artificial intelligence. Um, when you kind of hear you know people who are much deeper in this research and creation of AI uh, talk about it than me, um, they just say that's really just an algorithm. And, and ultimately, that's really what it is. It's just an algorithm, a prescriptive recipe given a set of inputs that it's taking in for how to digest those inputs and turn it into an output. Um, so it's not really smart. It doesn't really understand what you say. It doesn't, you know, it, 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 it's not really intelligent. Um, but there's some amazing things it can do. So that's the main misconception is that I think some people are overconfident. Um, the people who are worried, I think they have legitimate reasons to be worried. The, a lot of the kind of basic architecture that was rolled out of the gate in terms of some of the open source packages for things like facial recognition is totally biased. Like it's been shown repeatedly to be totally biased against skin tones and, and all kinds of things. So I think there's like legitimate concerns. I think you see that as, uh, you know, cities and states, um, state of Illinois has some legislation, certain cities are prohibiting facial recognition um, in policing and in, in other kind of uh, applications. Um, so I think you're starting to see some of the pendulum swing back, hopefully towards the middle, uh, which is there's some real real power here and some opportunity to do some things at scale that previously weren't possible. You have this tool as SHL. You have people who hire you, right? But I'm guessing if people want to work at SHL, they are going to be going through the soup to nuts interview process, right? The tool, the, 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 the tool to the utmost that you have. So I'm curious, do you practice everything you preach as, as an organization? And I know there might be a caveat, might be an asterisk there, but 
I wonder, are there sometimes you wish in an interview process where you could quote unquote follow your gut or your gut tells you something and, and you really like, man, why is the software telling me this? Uh, and, and how do you deal with that? Yeah. You know, as a, I think the science supports this view, but even as just as a hiring manager myself, I think more information is better. Um, and so multiple perspectives, it, they don't necessarily have to agree for that to be useful information. In fact, uh, some some divergence can make for some you know more interesting follow up. But I would, uh, you know, I think it's all important. So absolutely, even just doing panel interviews or inter- or successive interviews, you'll often find interviewers don't agree, and so they'll talk through and they'll find that they saw you know either different aspects of the same thing or you know different things entirely. And so they're each getting kind of a richer perspective on the candidate. I think having test results is the same thing that the, uh, if it's, let's say a personality test, um, that, that may line up with your experience of the person so far. And remember this dating process that we call interviewing and recruiting, it's only a few hours total interaction, human to human, before a decision is made and an offer is made. So it's really not a lot of time. Right, right. Um, so the tests actually are pretty powerful because they're built on, you know, large sample research and decades of, of kind of cumulative wisdom on how to approach these issues. So the test is the most reliable and accurate information in the entire process, but it doesn't mean it's the end all and it doesn't mean it should be making the decision for you. So yeah, we use uh, we definitely use our own assessments. Um, for most of our hiring, we use uh, something that we call a job focused assessment, which is uh, just what it sounds like. It's a it's a package of assessments that's been put together to optimize that design trade off that I was mentioning before. We typically refer to it as effectiveness efficiency and experience. So the three E's, um, how do you, how do you put together, uh, an assessment that's going to be predictive, but short enough to make, to make sense in the, in the recruiting process. And that's going to provide a positive experience and that people going through it will, it, they may not love it because it should be challenging in some cases, but at least they'll understand and appreciate why you did it. And they should be able to see, the links between the processes that you're using as an employer and the job that they think they're going for. And we call that face validity. So they should be able to see the job in the test uh, to a certain extent. Um, so, yep, we use that. We use these package assessments. It's not, unfortunately for me as a scientist, uh, it's not days and days of assessments. It's usually a little bit less than an hour. Uh, but then, of course, there'd be some interviews. Some of those are asynchronous interviews, which means you know, answer some questions whenever you want to, uh, usually over video and record those videos uh, on the platform. And then some of them are live virtual interviews where you would actually meet up with someone just as we've met up today. Um, Again, typically that involves video. And if it's for a technical position, it might include a little bit of a a job tryout or a work sample uh, during that session as well. So yeah, if you want to predict something as nebulous and uh, fluid as human behavior and performance outcomes on the job, you know, two years from now, you have to be really careful about the information you collect in that few hours you have with the people. You know, the idea of asynchronous interviews was going to be my next question because my only experience with interviews are live uh, on a phone or over Zoom. 
do you feel there are that asynchronous interview period? I'm wondering, cause I'm guessing there are sometimes people who can shine in person, right? Maybe it's a little bit more charisma. Um, and there are some people who, Hey, they need to ponder something and it might take them a little bit of time. So is it twofold? Is it trying to appease and be kind to the interviewee and give them to not force them to answer in a particular way? Or is there science behind, Hey, not everybody does well answering right away, but that doesn't mean that they might not be fit for the job. I, I think we're still getting started and figuring it all out because I think the intent was this makes it convenient for everybody. Um, and you don't have to schedule, you don't have to drive anywhere. You can, you know, have a glass of wine right on the off camera and just relax and be in your pajamas or whatever you want. Um, but I think the, what it actually turned out is that uh, quite a lot of people are anxious uh, being recorded over video. And so it. It, it does lose a lot of the rapport building that comes with uh, in-person experience and in-person interview. So it has a lot of unintended consequences. Um, so it, right now it's a bit of a trade-off and you know, th that's where the opportunity is as a product designer is to figure out how do you, make the interview more uh, an a something that's basically a, a robot or a you know a text asking you to imagine there was a human there listening to you um mm. that's kind of a hard thing to do if you're not used to <laughs> right. you know webcasts and things where you just record yourself speaking and trying to sound enthusiastic it's hard to sound enthusiastic to digital silence if you're right. not well practiced in it Right. Um, so the way that these things go, though, just for anyone who hasn't been through one is, um, you know, you'll get an email link and it brings you to some kind of platform and you log in and create a secure login because this is a, this is a job application. It's a personal, you know, this is sensitive data and, and confidential, et cetera. Um, and then the pr question is uh, typically presented via ta uh, as a textual message on screen, but it can be a recorded uh, audio or video as well. Uh, asking you kind of a scenario and then usually you have 30 seconds that's variable but it could be 30 seconds or 60 seconds to prepare uh, before the recording will commence um, in some cases and what we experimented a bit with is making it just so you can start the recording whenever you want but most of the way that these are set up you you have a limited time and I think that's the intent is to try to keep people honest or something. I'm not sure. Just to right. make sure you didn't walk away or that you're not asking your, uh, your mom for help or something. <laughs> right. Um, and then you have uh, between usually between two and three minutes to record a response. Some platforms give you the option of a, uh, of a mulligan or a do over. Um, not, not all platforms and not all employers and processes, uh, you know, kind of have that, but um some of them that do have that, you only get one. So uh, it's it's pretty, it's a bit stressful. If you haven't gone through it, uh, there are practice sites out there that you can go out and record, uh, try and record some video interview responses. And some of them will even give you some AI scoring uh, mm -hmm. on those as well. That is good to know. That is good to know in case the future holds a different job for me. So I'm curious what you think. Let's say there's an organization out there and they don't have the tools to invest in uh, a firm such as yourselves. I'm wondering 
is there a question out there that an interviewer should never ask? Or is there a question out there that an interviewer should always ask? Is there kind of a, hey, here's what I've learned in the art of interviewing and asking questions. Are there any any light you can shed there? Or is it too nuanced to even answer that? Well, I'll, I'll, yeah, I mean, the, the scientific answer is you should always just try to hire for what the job requires. So consider what it is you really need and are looking for and what it, what what evidence do you have that what you think you need is what you need? Uh, so we spend a lot of time in, in our field um, you know, validating that by going to a lot of job experts as we build our kind of success profiles or our job models. Um, so, you know, think about what the job really requires. What are the top things that, you know, are likely to make someone successful? But I've really enjoyed actually thinking about the talent scarcity uh, model recently. And, and if you're if you're a small business in particular, it's not, you don't have the same challenges as, um, you know, a, a big co and Amazon or someone who's getting thousands, tens, hundreds of thousands of applicants right. to sift through. You have the challenge of, you might only talk to two or three people. And how do you know if one of them was, you know, is even minimally sufficient in some cases? I, I think there's a lot to be said just by kind of turning it around and saying, you know, here's what we're looking for what do you think? <laughs> right. Why, right. why, why do you think you should work? Do you think you'd be a good fit here? You know, what would you do in, in this role? You know, how would you help us move this forward? What do you think we should do? Does this really one job or two jobs? Like just start to involve the person and see if they bite and if they're interested and motivated enough to help you and your business solve that challenge. Um, and I think you start to see pretty well, pretty quick, if they're going to be, if they'd be a good partner, a good employee, so that, that kind of comes from um, uh, Lou Adler and some other uh, kind of talent scarcity uh, practitioners out there. Uh, so there's there's some fun stuff to look up there. Got it. Appreciate that. Okay, a couple more questions. One's going to be just more on the tactical side and then two kind of fun personal ones. So, but I'm curious of how much, like, how much technology what your clients want and just what the cultural zeitgeist is saying, how much of that drives your product validation or how, how do you deal with balancing all of that? Yeah. Validation is a, is a loaded term in our world. Um, and I'll kind of address it just from a couple angles for you. The, the first is just the product market fit uh, element. And because we we're really serving a well-established market of, you know, organizations need to make hiring decisions and people decisions all the time. Um, and there's an opportunity to improve those decisions for measurable gain for them, you know, to make better, to improve quality of hire and improve the, the performance of their business. So we know that the market is there to serve it. And, and really what we're, uh, constantly looking at is how do we evolve the product as you just described in a way that's consistent with the, not the changing tastes so much, but the kind of changing, uh, capabilities and business demands. Uh, one, but one good example would be digital readiness. So, five years ago, if you said the word digital readiness, it wouldn't. No one would know what that meant. If you said digital transformation, they a few people would know. But somewhere around 2018 ish, uh, that word became the way of describing um, what every business was going through for the next ten years. And suddenly this concept of digital readiness became uh, really important to measure 
in workforces. And that wasn't something we just had sitting around off the shelf. So we had to, you know, define that, um, you know, figure out how to measure it and then scientifically validate the, the measure that we had come up with that it actually is measuring what we think it is. Um, so that kind of iterative or kind of responsive uh, product design happens all the time. And, and that's because we have enterprise clients. So we have, we're, like I said, we're this thin slice in a workflow. So we're very much married to our clients or they're married to us. Um, and we have, you know, active account support, et cetera. It's not quite as set it and forget it as a company that maybe picks up a Slack as a, as a communications tool on some teams, some divisions. These are programs that are heavily invested and they affect the company's brand and they're attached to their corporate website and other business systems. So they get a lot of account management. And as a result, uh, we are blessed to receive a lot of customer feedback. <laughs> so we're we're never at a loss for understanding what we could build. Um, as with many other product teams, our, our biggest challenge is you know, getting that down to a manageable list of things that we actually will deliver. Right, right. Fair. Okay. Two questions just for Ken and, and Ken and his life, your, your whole career, you've um, done some amazing stuff. So I like to ask this question to all guests. It is perfectionism, imposter syndrome, fear of failure. What's your self-sabotage drug of choice and how have you, and how do you deal with them? Uh, pro- pro- procrastination for sure. That's my, that's my biggest impediment to higher levels of achievement. Um, and I rationalize that away as just saying, well, achievement's not everything and you, you got to live too. Um, that's right. That's right. So yeah, I mean, the <laughs> imposter syndrome, I, I feel like I, I always probably have that and always have had that, but I just assume that that's just what it means when you're learning. So I, I've just kind of a, a more turned that around on itself and just said, that's just the normal state of things is that you always feel uncomfortable and until you've done it, you know, a thousand times. And I don't really like doing things a thousand times. So I just assume I'm <laughs> always, always feel be that an imposter. Way. That's right. We're all, <laughs> we're all imposters. We're all imposters. Like you said, and if you're not, you're probably going to be pretty bored. Yeah. Um, yeah exactly. if, if you're not, if you're not an imposter, so I'll, I'll take procrastination for, uh, for 500. Got it. Got it. You know what? And that wasn't even, I said it was a nice addition. I actually started with perfectionism, imposter syndrome and the fear of failure. And, and it's I, definitely not perfectionism. I, I've, I'm a big believer that shipping is a feature and you have yeah. to get, done you have to get it out the door in order for it to have any consequence on anyone's life um so yeah i'm i've i've never been on perfectionism no i I love that i think there's a statement that i like it's you have to get to the point where you can say here take a look right get it get it (laughs) out of your head or your computer and you can able to share with someone hey take a look and let me know what you think and that that's that's what i i try to i try to fight for as well in my writing and in my work uh last last question i know you are not a a, a technical business owner, but de facto you, you run a team and, and um, I'm curious how you create space for yourself as a leader. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's good just to always be in touch with yourself and figure out where you're at and, and different people's lives and different phases of lives. You have, you know, more or less um, single mindedness on your career potentially. Um so it, it really depends on where you're at. But if you found yourself in a situation where uh, there was a mismatch or you weren't happy with the balance, um, 
I think some of it is just kind of you have to it's it's the schedule, right? So if Outlook or or Google or whatever is your calendar uh, uh, manager of choice, it's you know putting stuff into that calendar that is about these other things. Uh, so uh, for me, it's you know making sure that I put the bus stop pickup for my kid on the calendar because uh, I don't want to schedule a meeting on that. Like I I can get out of it, but I want to do it, you know? Um, so a lot of it is kind of putting it into your calendar. Um, uh, you know, I think you put, and it could be a walk, you know, it could be a lunch. It's just kind of forcing yourself to acknowledge that time is the thing. Um, and you have to spend some of it on yourself. Um, so that would be the most kind of, uh, <laughs> uh, the most manipulative way to do it to yourself. The other one is just kind of trying to build habits. Uh, that one of the founders of American psychology, William James, said something to the effect of, you know, a habit takes about 100 days um, to create. So think about something and, you know, if you need to calendarize it for 100 days, whether that's waking up early to write, uh, to get your, you know, writing out before you start getting phone calls and emails or having to deal with vendors or employees or whatever, or exercise or just whatever those things are. Um, think about that concept of trying to do it for two, three months. And, and by then it might become a part of your life. Ken, I hear you and I know it. And I think everybody out there is like, wait, my New Year's resolution doesn't just live on January 1st in perpetuity. <laughs> it's like, nope, it takes two to three months uh, doing it again and again. Yeah, they're not sexy, but but the work is the work. Um, on this sign-off, there's one thing I, th I thought we'd get to, but, but I think you had told me that even if someone didn't get the job, you are giving that person feedback on, hey, here's what you did well, or hey, here's what you might want to work on and some really tactical stuff. And I kind of find that heartwarming, right? I find that that really really nice that you are working to make the entire experience a little bit more enjoyable, even for the people who don't end up getting hired. And I just want to say kudos uh, to that because at the end of the day, we're all humans, right? We're all trying to figure it out. Well, I appreciate you giving me that feedback. I hope that doesn't mean I didn't get the job here. No, no, you're hired. <laughs> you're hired. Ken. You're hired. So have a wonderful rest of the day and uh, we'll chat soon. Thank you, Bassam. Take care. Headspring is sponsored by IQ Lab. IQ Lab is dedicated to transforming enterprises through digital automation, IoT, and data science. For more information on IQ Lab, please visit iqlab.com. That's e y e c u e l a b.com. Thank you.